This is Bedside, a podcast series on a mission to debunk sex. I'm your host, Tatiana, and each week we'll uncover stories, ideas, routines, and expert information to help guide you on your ever-evolving journey of good sex. We believe that through democratizing sexual wellness, we can shift cultural taboos and make way for authentic and limitless access to pleasure, joy, and connection to the body. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Bedside Podcast. I'm so excited to introduce you to today's guest, Atara Valentine. Some of you may be familiar with Atara's work already as a former manifestation coach for Tubi Magnetic. However, today, Atara is joining Bedside to chat all about his latest venture, starting his own practice called The Seed Level. Atara is a certified hypnotherapist and mindset coach with specialized training in inner child healing, trauma recovery, mental and emotional release therapy, PTSD, law of attraction, immune disorders, and so much more. Valentine developed a very grounded, pragmatic approach to healing, leaving his clients feeling empowered and regaining trust in themselves through a process of conscious and subconscious cognitive reframing. In other words, as you'll hear through this interview, Atara is just an amazing healer and intuitive, and I cannot wait for you to listen to this episode as we cover cultivating self-worth, living authentically, and recovering from trauma. As a disclaimer, this episode does touch on suicide, so just a quick trigger warning, but we also end up covering topics of manifestation, codependency, what trauma healing looks like, how Atara met his amazing partner, nervous system regulation, sexual identity, and really just an entire conversation on how we can begin to live our life transitioning from survival mode to thriving. This was just a really wonderful conversation to have, and I know you are going to gain so much insight from it. So without further ado, please welcome Atara Valentine to the Bedside Podcast. Hi, Atara. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Bedside Podcast today. I am so excited to be here and sad that we didn't get to do it in person, but next one. A hundred percent. I already know there's going to be a next one. (laughs) (laughs) Before we get into all of this amazing conversation that I'm really excited to have with you today, I just kind of want to do a temperature check. How are you? How have you been lately? I know it's been crazy pandemic world, this weird way of living that we've all adjusted to. So how are you? I am fantastic, actually. It's been a very insane few years with COVID. Obviously, in addition to that, my husband was diagnosed with cancer right at the start of COVID. So we were really hit with a lot immediately. We just moved. We'd spent our whole savings coming across the country and really didn't know how we were going to survive it. But we were very fortunate in the way that things unfolded. And we were able to both really come through even stronger than before. Our whole entire life has changed off the back of this because we took it very seriously as, okay, 
where are we feeling unprotected? Where are we feeling stuck? What can we do to change these things? And we both took a bunch of initiative to reroute ourselves and ground ourselves in different fields and interests. And it opened up my whole entire life, which is why I'm doing what I'm doing now. It happened accidentally. And then I just really focused a lot of time and energy and attention and it changed everything. So I'm doing very good. That's amazing to hear. Tell me where you moved from. Yeah, so I lived in New York for 17 years and I love, loved, I can't say I love New York anymore because I don't, but I really feel, and I think a lot of people probably feel like this, but that I lived in New York during the best time. Williamsburg, there still wasn't a Dwayne Reed. There were like petitions. If a chain store wanted to open up, there were still artists everywhere. And somehow no one seemed to have a job, even though we were all working, we could sit in McCarran Park for like six hours in the middle of a Wednesday. Right. So I do have a connection to New York, but moving to California was just such the life change that I needed, especially coming here and it being so relaxed, but having a New York work ethic, it's been pretty incredible pairing those two things together. <laughs> you nailed it on the head. I also did like a New York to LA move early pandemic. And you summed it up right. It is the chillest, most relaxing kind of warm hug moving here. But then you're like, I still have got that edge to me. People have this misconception that when you come here, you start leaning into relaxation and vacation mode all the time and you don't get anything done. And I found it to be the exact opposite. I'm so grounded. And even the activities that I do with my friends here versus in New York, where we just sit and we drink every night and go out to eat and all of this stuff and just feel bloated and have indigestion. I go on hikes. I go and I watch sunsets on the beach with my friends in Venice. We were constantly doing something with nature. And I think when you have that influence around you, it kind of forces you to slow down because it feels so good that you just want to be able to do that. So then in turn, naturally, you want to set boundaries and you want to say no to things so that you have space for yourself. And it allows me to really ground myself and be so much more productive without feeling like I have to work so hard to get things done. That mentality of New York where you're literally sacrificing eating. I'm going to have a Red Bull in a bar because I don't have time to eat versus I make all of my food every day. I eat very fresh. I never did that before. I always put my body last. And just the culture here really makes you look at your relationship with your body and redefine it. I said that the other week. I was kind of just trying to assess what's kind of been shifting. And I was reflecting on what my old habits living in New York were like. I used to sacrifice and I wouldn't do this intentionally in a restrictive way. I just would literally sacrifice meals because I couldn't get it all done or the pace was so crazy that I'd be like oh my god I didn't have breakfast and like it would slip my mind like I'd just have coffee and by like one o'clock my blood sugar <laughs> would be bottomed out but to echo what you're saying it's so amazing to live in a place that nurtures you in a way that you can become such a creative and intuitive force it's really cool to see that and experience that so I'm with you but I'm curious to know a little bit more about who you are, a bit of your cultural upbringing and background that really led you to the work that you do today. So who I am is someone who really had a lot to learn in their life because of the circumstances I was born into. We struggled with money. Obviously, my sexuality at a very young age was pointed out by people before I even identified as anything. So I dealt with bullying. I dealt with physical and emotional abuse in my house. So 
I constantly had to look at my environment to figure out who I was allowed to be. And it felt like no matter how I adjusted myself, it was never right or never good enough. So, so much of my story of my life is about who I had to be for other people and how I had to show up for other people to try and get fed some kind of love or attention. And that led me to music at a very young age. It was the only outlet that I could actually express feelings. We weren't raised hearing I love you or being hugged. Still to this day, if you hug someone in my family, they act like you're going to pick their pocket or something. <laughs> they do like the uncomfortable pat can just be like a really intimate hug. So music was the outlet that I was led to because I realized I was able to do something with all of the feelings that felt trapped inside of my body because I couldn't talk to anyone. I didn't really feel like I had a safe space anywhere. So, so much of my journey was trying to become successful as a musician. And I signed a record deal with Atlantic Records. I had the same A&R as Bjork. I met her a bunch of times. I met really cool, interesting people. And everyone my whole life was like, oh, you're a star and this is going to happen and all these things. And of course, someone who felt so invisible their whole life, that was so exciting. And I would work really hard to create these opportunities but they would never stick because when I would get them, I all of a sudden felt the opportunity was bigger than I was. And a little bit of self-sabotage would kick in, which we can get into that later. Now I realize there's no such thing as self-sabotage, actually. It's literally your subconscious trying to protect you from something that it's fearful of. So no matter what came in front of me, it always fell apart because I thought the thing outside of me was going to change who I was. And nothing that ever came did that. I always landed back on who I've always been until I started really doing work on myself. So I was the 11 year old who was subscribed to psychology today. I started doing yoga when I was 13 years old in the nineties in New Jersey, which no one even heard of. And I wanted to figure things out. So I was always on this journey, seeking purpose, seeking what is the point of this? Why is this my life? What I'm faced with every day? Like, is this really what life is about? And really trying to answer all of my own questions, whether it was through studying Kabbalah for 17 years, whether it was doing Joe Dispenza, Marissa Peer to be magnetic, all of the things that I try to do to understand, I would get answers and I slowly started collecting things. But it was really only in this past year that I realized there was still so much missing for me. And I really spent a lot of time developing my own tools because I was manifesting like crazy. I completely changed my life, but I still wasn't happy. And I was like, what's going on here? And I realized I was a really fast manifester also, but with my codependency from growing up, it became another thing. I became very codependent with like, oh my God, what is this? What does this mean? So I had to really check in with myself and learn how to answer the questions that weren't answered for me still. Like, well, what is happiness? And when do I feel the most happy in my life? Even just feel content and not feel like there's something more that I need or I don't have enough. So I've really focused all of my work and everything that I'm creating in my company about being able to connect with ourselves daily so that we can start creating a very neutral space where we're not on the roller coaster and the ups and downs. We could start regulating our nervous system so that we can actually use our body to create and receive what we want instead of really pushing ourselves and creating stress to do that. There's so many things I'm excited to go off of and branch off of from there. But before we go into that, I would love to know a little bit about what your messaging around sex and sexuality was like growing up. What were your role models at home? Did you have any sort of sex ed in school? I'm curious to know that. 
I grew up in the time when people would have sex on screen and it's like, close your eyes. This is a dirty part. Do you remember parents saying that to you? Like, like they'd hold dirty. your, they'd like hold your and eyes. They like, you. And you have to like close your eyes. And it's like, you think it's so bad that you don't even want to see it. So this is the kind of programming that I got at a very young age. But then on top of that, around sex and sexuality, I was sexualized at such a young age by my stepdad who would call me a faggot and like drape his hand over at the table and tell me I'm a sissy literally at seven years old when I didn't know what anything was. I just knew there was something wrong with me, quote unquote. And that was really heavily reinforced by his family, his brothers, all these people who are really struggling with their own masculinity, obviously, if they need to project their insecurities on a seven-year-old to feel like a man. So school, same thing, very small minded, small town that I grew up in, no matter how I tried to fit in or what I tried to do, somehow it was always pinpointed and it was always around my sexuality. So I struggled with suicidal ideation my whole life because of that. When I really started developing and connecting to that piece of myself, I didn't want them to be right. All of the things that I was made fun of, I didn't want that to be true. And me having to admit that to myself was so terrifying because it meant, oh my God, everyone's right about me. I'm wrong. There is something wrong with me. I'm weird. I'm different. So for me, suicide was, well, if I do this, then I never have to let those people know that they were right. So that answer that in the most intense way possible. <laughs> My heart goes out to you in that story. And I think a lot of other people who've experienced similar circumstances, and it just breaks my heart that the joy of a child is something that we need to label. Why would it make you queer the way you're behaving when you're seven years old? I'm so happy to see that that narrative is changing now, slowly but surely, but I can understand how that completely impacted your life. And I can understand the resistance too, being like, well, I want to prove everybody wrong but how do I reckon with this? So what did your reckoning look like? What I find exciting in life is you never really know what is ahead. And so I had all of these issues. I ended up getting a full scholarship to college in California for design. I moved out here and I had to work to pay for expenses and food and things like that. So because I was in school to be an apparel designer, I was looking for jobs doing that, right? Or like assisting jobs or whatever I could get. So I applied for this job that said leather factory, whatever. So in my mind, it was like Wilson's leather, the leather store in the mall that sells leather jackets and like bags and backpacks. And I walked into this interview and it was the only interview I got. And it was actually all S&M. It was ball gags, cuffs. When I walked in, someone was head to toe wrapped in latex tape, like a cocoon, sex swings, straight jackets. It was the most extremely sexual environment that I'd ever been in. Even walking from my interview, there's naked people walking by in the photo shoot. And I was like, what is this? But I had to take the job because it was the only job that showed up. So I did. And that really helped me learn to be okay with everything, right? And I was like, oh, this is totally normal. These people are just like me who are working here. And actually, one of my closest friends still to this day I met during that time. Someone else I met there was the person who introduced me to my husband years later in New York, just so randomly. So that happened. And then when I moved to New York, I had my design degree. All this great stuff was happening in my life in California. But I had 
a major identity crisis. Again, struggled with depression because all this opportunity was coming. They wanted to give me a free year of school. My school was going to pay for me to develop a line. They were only picking four people to do that. They were like, we can get you a job with Rick Owens, who was just starting in Los Angeles at that time. And I couldn't handle it. And I literally like shaved my head, shaved my eyebrows. I gained all this weight. I was just so terrified and unconsciously trying to shift myself to make myself. And now I can see this, but at the time I didn't undesirable. So these opportunities wouldn't come. And this is what happens with our subconscious when we're doing something like this. It's like, oh, you have all this opportunity. Let me destroy it for you. Nobody would intentionally do that. But the fear of being seen was so much stronger than the reward that I associated with the opportunity. So of course the programming wins. So I moved to New York instead because I wanted to be closer to family and friends. And I really lost my identity when I was away. And again, I was like, I'm only going to get a job if it's a design job. I won all of these awards when I graduated from like the fashion council of Los Angeles or whatever it was called at the time. And I just felt really impressed with myself because I worked for it. I knew how to work and earn and achieve. That's how I taught. That's how you're successful. And I was great at it, but I couldn't get a job. And it was right after 9-11 when people were being laid off, there wasn't work. So I applied for another job. Just it said it was a store called the Pink Pussycat Boutique. It was close to my house and just happened to be a sex shop. <laughs> so again, and I was still, I wasn't out. I never was in a relationship because I was so terrified of looking at my sexuality. But this was the job that I just happened to get. And I ended up becoming the buyer for the store. It's when like the rabbit was the thing. So I learned about people's relationship to their sexuality and to their bodies. And again, I saw so many different kinds of people coming in. You have this idea someone at that time went to a sex shop and like, oh my God, they're this, or they're off the beaten path or they're perverts. And because that's how we're raised to believe, oh, you use, like you have a sex toy. Oh, like you're this, what's wrong with you? You should be more connected when you have sex with your partner. You need, and it's like, there's so much shame around it. And I actually saw all different kinds of couples from all different places in their lives, socioeconomic places, different religions, different races coming in and like really connecting in a relationship through the purchases that they were making. And people would be so open and candid with me. So that really helped transform my relationship with just sexuality in general. Cause I was like, oh, this is what everybody does. Like, they're just so afraid to talk about it. 100%. And it's funny, too. Like, I was laughing to myself as you were saying that because I was like, no other place like New York than to realize that your sexuality is nothing compared to, like, the people around you. And I say that in a way where it is the melting pot. And so it's like you are going to see all walks of life in the best way possible. And I always tell people that if you can, like, go live in New York for a couple years, you'll come out a totally new person in the best way. New Yorkers don't give a fuck. And I think that there's something even like in a sex shop in New York, it's like, let's normalize this shit. You know, the thing that's really interesting in working there was so many people who came in were drunk because it was on West 4th Street. And so there were a lot of restaurants. That was where the place everyone came. All the bridge and tunnel people like would hang out there. And that's what I noticed is all like the young girls who would never dare walk in by themselves, like the bachelorette parties or a group of 10 girls, because like the power in numbers for them to walk in and feel like it's okay. And even that wasn't enough. They all had to be wasted. And I was like, what does that say about the world that we live in for these people to 
really learn how to connect with their body or pleasure themselves. They have to come in a group. They have to be wasted. They have to make a joke about it to feel comfortable even acknowledging it. That's why we're here right now. That was my experience, too. I grew up right outside of Philadelphia. And so we'd go into Philly and there was this one sex shop called Condom Kingdom. And it had the same font as the Build-A-Bear font. Like that really playful condom kingdom. And we'd go in and it was because we'd be like having like gone out to eat downtown or maybe we were just day drinking downtown, whatever we were doing as teenagers. And then we'd like as a whole group mob in. And that was my first sex shop experience ever. And yeah, you totally think that it's a place for the extremists, but it's not. And that was kind of my own experience with that. But I really am curious to know, you've shared this part of you where you were like, I shaved my head. I moved back to New York. I was in this sex shop because I look at you now and I'm like, wow, do we have a person in front of us who is so in their authenticity, so glowing inside out and just in their worth and on this really amazing path and track. How and where did that start and begin? I mean, it started my whole life. I just wasn't able to maintain it. But it's really been these past few years. I allowed myself to prioritize my own needs first. Seems like an easy enough concept, but it's what we struggle with the most. Most people get up and they look at their phone and their calendar to see who they have to be for other people today, who they have to be to do the things that are outside of them, right? And it seems like a very taboo concept to be like, oh, I'm prioritizing my own feelings. Oh, I don't like how I feel in this friendship. Even though I love you, I need to set this boundary. Oh, that boundary doesn't work. Okay, well, I can't have you in my life. Even though something may not have happened, no big blowout, it's just, you start realizing how you feel in certain relationships and you realize that you have choice to continue doing it and reinforcing that this is your life and this is your story and these are the best friendships or romantic partners that you can get, or you can begin disrupting it and really focusing on how you want to feel and how you want to show up. And I was so meticulous in the way that I did it. I didn't try and do too much too soon. It's what I call and how I teach reactive change. I don't want to feel this, so I need this. I don't want to be single, so I need a partner. I don't want to be broke, so I won't need to start this job. I don't want this, so I want that. I'm tired of feeling like this in my body, so I need to do this. And that works enough to get us started. But as soon as we get away from that feeling that we don't want to feel, we lose motivation. That's what yo-yo dieting is. We do something extreme. Do we lose weight? Yeah, we lose a lot of weight in two weeks. But did our consciousness change around food? No. Did our consciousness change around our emotions? No. Did our relationship to movement change? No. So all we can do is end up back where our consciousness is. So what I really did and what I teach people that I work with and do in my programs as well is what proactive changes. I really focus on that because Getting away from something, that's a great starting motivation, but we have to understand what's on the other side, really what we're looking for. And that's not stuff. Even when I taught manifestation, none of the people that I worked with were like, I want to manifest a car or this or that. They're like, I want self-worth. I want to feel connected, which is what I'm really good at, right? I consider myself now more of an embodiment coach than everything else. I teach people how to be who they are. And so part of doing that is really getting clear on what you want to feel, 
based on what your internal need is, not the environment, not what the expectation is on you, not what's worked in the past, based on the lack that you're feeling in yourself and what you want to connect with instead. And if we can prioritize that, it gets so much easier to make these changes because it's not something you're trying to get away from. You're trying to really maintain this. So anything that gets in the way or removes it or makes you feel different than you want to feel is just something you need to learn or work through to just keep moving closer to that authenticity that you're seeking. You bring up such an amazing point and like I have such a crazy personal story around this too. What's standing out the most to me here is really we're not taught to lean into our intuition. A lot of us have been raised to worry about how everybody else is thinking about us and to especially if you grew up in like a chaotic household manage other people's expectations keep the peace leave yourself to make sure everybody else is okay you said that you didn't go in all at once you did it in pieces and it makes me wonder because I have a story where I went all in at once and my nervous system like could not handle. Yeah, I was going to say, how'd that work out for you? <laughs> it actually led to a panic disorder, which has been the craziest thing that I've ever had to deal with in my life. But I see it now as the biggest blessing of my life. But I did challenge something so much, like a message that I believed so deeply, which was that you know, my old messaging was I am nothing without the people around me. And if I were to lose these people who are around me, then who am I? And it was a huge core wound. And when I kind of like left a group of people that I was so deeply connected to, it literally threw my nervous system into an extreme fight or flight, which then led to like a lot of panic attacks and then me being, well, what's going on? And it became a disordered thing. And I went to therapy for it. I'm still in therapy for it, but it is a thing. I'm curious to get your outlook on doing it in a way where like you can do it in a healthy graded way. First and foremost, a lot of people don't even really understand what fight flight is. They think fight or flight is like you're going to punch someone in the face or like run out of the room. And it's more complicated than that, but also incredibly easy. Fight, flight, freeze doesn't just show up as literally we run, we fight or we freeze. It shows up as anxiety, depression and procrastination. And this gets triggered, especially when we are overloaded. Cognitive overload is the worst thing. And we get into it constantly every day based on how we're feeling in our body, the thoughts that we're thinking, how much we're on our phone, the advertising between commercials. There's so much visual stimulation. We're so scheduled in everything we do. So all of that has an impact on us and on our nervous system. And our battery is not always at 100 every day. So if we have a bad night's sleep, we're already starting at 50%, but every day we're still expecting ourselves and our body to show up exactly the same. And that just cannot happen. And so that's one of the biggest lessons that I had to learn because when we start getting overloaded, guess what happens? When your sympathetic nervous system kicks in, you lose that logic, reason, willpower, and superior decision-making. And guess who's driving your car all of a sudden? Your subconscious programming, your story. And that just continues to reinforce that, yes, this is true. And this thing logically that you know you want can't happen. And your subconscious can give you 900 reasons why we're projecting that story around us at all times so that we know who we 
have to be, how to stay safe, even though it's totally unconscious. So when we try to do these huge changes, that's why people get exhausted. They get really emotional, even with one life change, changing their job, if that's really defined them or ending a relationship, even if they're miserable in the relationship, because there's a comfort and security in knowing what to expect. That's what your subconscious loves is that familiarity. So anything that is unknown to your subconscious is processed as pain, even if it's good for you. So if we can be intentional about this, we can change it. And that's the big motivation in why I started my company, The Seed Level, and the first protocol I released, which is called Rehearse for Calibrate Review. It's a three-part check-in that you're tapping into your body's biological rhythm to expedite change. None of this has to be complicated. We don't have to sit in a meditation for an hour twice a day to make change. We don't have to be even listening to something for 45 minutes in one go. We just have to tune into our body in the moments that our body is open to suggestion or in the moments that our body starts getting tired and overloaded so we can start releasing some of the stuff that we're holding on to. So we have more space to process the rest of our day. So it's a three-part check-in. You do, there's a 15-minute morning routine, one from around one to three, because that's when we tend to start shutting down. And most people grab caffeine, which actually creates more adrenaline and cortisol, fight flight, or we just fall right into numbing. We start going on our phone. We start slowing down and falling into automation. So this is really designed to teach you how to use your body and listen to your body to regulate your nervous system so that you can really achieve the things that you want to and keep that conscious mind open so that you can process information based on what is true, not based on what that subconscious fear is. That's so interesting. So if we look at my story, what I went to is my cup was already full. I moved across the country. I was changing jobs. It was between jobs. I left an entire group of friends, the pandemic. There was so much and it was overflowing. And then I was like, well, I need to cut something out so I like pulled the plug and it almost it like went into that it just like bypassed everything I just kind of went into it so I like what you're saying where you're like where can you like do this in a way where you're not overriding that conscious brain because I went to the back of my head by like (laughs) like fight or flight response right like that was old programming and it was interesting to actually even do the work around and be like well, the last time I felt this way was when I was in the third grade, right? And be like, well, wow. Well, like what was happening in the third grade and like all this change and like, oh my gosh, like this. So it was really interesting to like become familiar with that side of myself. But I kind of like your protocol where you're like, well, we don't have to go to those extremes. We don't have to put our body under extreme duress to make the pivotal changes that we're looking to make. Yeah. And even how I work with people through trauma is very different than most people because we know what our trauma is. We know how it's affected us, right? Someone messaged me last night that they'd been doing this, my protocol that I just released for a week. And in a week, they've noticed more changes and shifted than they have in years of doing therapy. They were seeing a practitioner from someone who does hypnosis, who's very successful. And she shared with them, oh, I'm not seeing the changes for how much I'm committing to this and how much I'm really signing up for this and adjusting my life. And the person said to her, oh, well, it's because your childhood trauma, you know, it's going to make things go very slow and maybe you won't even be able to heal it. Like there was something wrong with her because they weren't qualified. And this is the reality. And this is the problem sometimes with brands when they try to be trauma informed, but they've never had the personal experience in their life 
you cannot tell me how my trauma affects me and what trauma is if you've never experienced it. It can't be learned in a textbook, right? It's not something that because you think you know all the answers in this one area that transfers over to this because it's a unique thing. And when you put it on people like, oh, your block is your trauma, you need to blah, 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 and maybe this will work and maybe it won't. That is the most disempowering thing that you can do to somebody because it means because this thing happened in your past, you're never going to have the life that you want. And that is just not true because choice exists in the present moment. The issue with trauma is we learn we have to protect ourselves. So we're always unconsciously looking to see when things are going to go wrong so that we can be activated, right? So that takes us out of the present. That's how that trauma keeps being projected around us. So what we really have to focus on is learning how to come back into our bodies, learning how to reconnect with our body to feel safe. This is what I do when people have sexual abuse, right? When they just, we stop feeling safe in ourselves, and we look for the environment to control it, to create safety. But the only way through is really learning how to reconnect with who we really are. And we have to be present to do that. Otherwise, nothing will work. And it's not about going and reliving your childhood and reprogramming it 900 times because we still have other threats around us. It's about knowing that in the moment, I have a choice here. Thank you so much for saying that. I had in a moment a couple months ago and this kind of ties into what you were saying, where I actually had to make the executive decision to break up with a therapist that had been doing a lot of digging into my past. And I had to find a new practitioner who was going to help me more in the present moment because I did have a really honest conversation with myself. And I mean, this was not easy to do where I just said, how often am I going to go look back at my childhood and seek for things and find answers versus deal with the present issues at hand, like in a tactful way? And it took a moment to, because I was like, well, maybe there's something there. Maybe I need to keep looking back. Maybe, I need, you know, and I say all this because and I thought of this because you said someone came in your DMs and said something about the hypnosis and the practitioner not having the best response. You can find different practitioners and there's a slew of them and we don't have to just like trust a singular person like we can shop around and sometimes you grow out of things too yeah and a really great way to test the waters is and it's interesting because so many of my clients are actually therapists themselves or coaches right but what i found really interesting is how i work with people is very different right and I've seen this multiple times with people, people I'm working with who have had immune disorders, who are dealing with cancer, right? And their therapist is so, oh, well, you can't do that. No, and I cannot sign this release form and I cannot do this to, to my blah, blah, blah. And, like, and they have all these excuses and they get so defensive. So if your practitioner that you're working with is threatened by you building a team around you to really support your growth, you are not with the right therapist, Right. And I honestly think so many times in therapy, it's very lazy focusing on the environment constantly because listen, I let my environment define because I had no choice. Obviously we don't as kids, it just is what it is. It's how we develop. It's how we receive our programming, our belief system, right? Our positive and negative associations that all comes from the environment. But I refuse as an adult 
to continue to allow my environment to define who I am and who I can be, right? And so when we're constantly sitting in it, well, how did that make you feel? And oh, work that. And what relationship was that like as a kid? You can talk about that forever. It's still about other people. And it's still this idea that your environment dictates who you can be. But what if, and this is really why I called my company the seed level, what if we flip that script? And for the first time, what we allowed to define ourselves was the vision that we were holding for ourselves, not based on environment, not based on stuff, not based on people, based on how we want to feel in ourselves, in our bodies, how we want to be able to show up, because that involves no one else except for you. Mm. And that's power. Yeah. Wow. Yes. To all the above. I had this therapist once say to me, he was like, think of dogs. He was telling me a story. He's like, my dog would sometimes have seizures as they got older before they passed away. And they would have this moment where they'd be like seizing for like 30 seconds and I'd be freaking out and then they'd be done and then they'd go back to their bone. And like, it's a curse and a blessing that like they don't, that we have the ability to look back on our past. And he was like using this interesting analogy of like, you know, things can happen to people, right? We don't have to like always look back and like turn our heads back and assess it all. Like think of the dog, you know, (laughs) like. Yeah, well, there is something else that happened with a polar bear that's really interesting that people can Google YouTube, but essentially it's these people who were trying to tag the polar bears who do studies and things, polar bears that were in the wild. And so they shot it with a dart to make the polar bear sedated. And then they share what happens in the video. The polar bear is conscious, but it's paralyzed in the moment and its body starts shaking as the sedative is wearing off naturally, right? To get rid of the trauma. And then the polar bear gets up, shakes off really aggressively, and then just continues walking, right? And I watch my dog every morning and this might sound crazy, but this is where we can really learn from animals because my dog, when I watch her in the morning, she's very slow. And then at one point she decides she does this whole body stretch. So I started doing this whole body stretch in bed and it literally makes everything feel so stimulated and alert and alive. And when I watched this polar bear thing, it was like, oh, we have to do something with that trauma that we experience. But so many of us, we don't talk about it. We don't go for a run or we don't dance or shake it off. We just keep internalizing it and internalizing it and internalizing it. And that's where so much of our health issues come from. And even anxiety, it's all of these internalized feelings that we haven't dealt with. And what if we did just shake it off? What if when something happened in that moment, we immediately discussed it and then allowed resolution to come instead of feeling like we constantly have to harbor these things because we're afraid of people judging us for standing up for ourselves, right? And it's so important to be able to look at that and figure out how to show up that way in your own life, because then you can be healing in the moment. That's what we want to be doing here. We don't want to have to have 10 bad things happen to us so we then feel okay telling a friend that they treated us like shit. I'm kind of obsessed with that because what your method is doing is teaching people how shit's going to happen. That's just the world we live in. So you're teaching people how to manage in real time and process and heal in real time so that we're not building up a lifetime of whatever it is that is building up into whatever it's going to manifest into, which can be for you, it manifested into suicidal ideation, for me, manifested into panic disorder. Like these are big things that, like, because you pushed 
and pushed and didn't give air to and shake off and give voice to like that's how it can kind of translate if you can't take care of it your body will find a way to take care of it for you and it's not always the healthiest option it's just what it needs to do right mine manifested in depression i was bulimic i was anorexic then i was obsessed with working out my body would constantly do what it needed to do to just stop me from trying to do the thing I was afraid of because I wasn't really walking through anything. I wasn't looking at anything. I wasn't dealing with what my feelings were about it. I was in such denial and just internalizing all of it. So what a great thing to happen then for me to not be able to go out to eat because then I can't see people and then I'm not judged or for me to feel so uncomfortable in my body that I just want to sit in my house because I feel so much shame around it because cool. When that happens, I get to be invisible and no one can judge me. Right? So this is how all of this stuff happens. And if we understand that, we can come back into our conscious mind and make choice. And I see it so quick with people I work with in my one-on-one -on -one sessions, even with the workshop that I just released, someone just quit their job. They've been wanting to quit for five years. They went in and did it with so much grace. It was so well-received and supported by the company they're with. Another girl, her period regulated, right? And people are like, how are these things happening? Oh my God, I haven't binge eaten in two weeks. How is this happening? I lost 12 pounds in the past month and a half. I haven't even had 12 pounds to lose, so I thought. But it's just because my nervous system is doing what it's supposed to do. So I'm sleeping better. I have more energy. I don't need to over-caffeinate. And when our nervous system is happy and our body is happy, we get to be happy in our lives. We get to create. We have that choice again. So none of this has to be hard. Don't let people tell you because it is a lie. People like you to be stuck so that you keep spending money and coming to them and whatever else. And, you know, oh, yes, I'm not this, but, you know, you have the power. But as long as you come to me, as long as you do my method, as long as you do this, right? But if you go off, then that's not going to happen. And it's like, that's just not true. Any brand, any work that you're doing, any practitioner that you're working with should have your health and your growth as the priority. And that can all come from one person. Wow. I love that you're sharing these benefits of what actually happens when your system is in rest and digest and like in a state of peace. What is the benefit, if someone's wondering, of being in that more conscious present mind? Does that bring us more into our authenticity? Does that bring us more into our magnetism? Like what does that specifically help us with? It brings you into everything because you're actually an active player in your life when you're there. If you're just walking around in your programming, you wake up, you make the coffee with your eyes closed, you somehow make your way to the bathroom, you get dressed, you start doing your work that you're just calling in the whole day. Are you alive? Are you living in that moment? Or are you existing? So when we're doing that, it's really easy to get stuck in that story, right? And if we can understand, I don't care what your life is. I don't care what you do. I don't care if you're the CEO of you know, a money market company or you're a stay-at-home mom. We create repetition in our lives and we get stuck in it. We have a way of doing things. We don't go outside of that. And life can feel very uninspiring when that happens. What if we were able to look at every single day as an opportunity to connect with or express a different part of ourselves? Then there's so much freedom in that. That is how we change in a proactive way and slowly is we see with our own eyes that we have choice. Oh, today 
My word is movement. So I walk to all of my appointments, right? I'm very aware of my body when I'm getting up and doing things. My workout today is going to be more connected to dance. And then I'm going to do some calisthenics, like really just connect with my body, right? Yesterday, I had a very busy day. So my word was slowly. I got everything that I needed to do done, but I spoke a little softer. I moved a little more slowly. I didn't rush myself. I gave myself plenty of space to do what I needed to do. So that's the gift of presence because when you're present, you're not overloading the conscious mind. You're not triggering the fight flight and then getting caught in that vehicle where your subconscious is driving. You are creating choice. You are becoming the teacher in real time to your subconscious, showing yourself that there's other ways to grow, showing yourself that there's more opportunity around you than you even realized because you're raising your awareness to it. Wow. I think the first thing I think of is getting out of survival mode and into like this space of thriving. Yeah, because that's what happens when you're in a stress response. You don't have logic, reason, willpower, superior decision making, right? You're in survival mode. So if you don't like that story, you have to learn how to not be in survival mode. And it's really not that hard with disruption techniques, which I'm really big on. And I teach a lot of people. I'm going to release that soon, too, but teach people in workshops and also the disruption of just tapping into your body a couple of times a day to see what you need, right? Oh, I'm getting tired. Okay, well, is all of this stuff important or can some of this go to tomorrow instead of just because you wrote it on a list thinking you have to do everything because you don't. And if you really look, some of it doesn't have to be done. Some of it can be done on the weekend, right? But we create this trap for ourselves, especially if our internal belief is that there's not enough time ever. We're going to really do whatever we can to reinforce that as true. Totally. And I think too, like what I am curious to ask you is maybe there are people who are listening where I'm like, well, in their minds, like I didn't experience a big trauma Though I do believe everybody has little T trauma that they carry with them, whether or not you're willing to. Well, admit last it. time I checked, we all just went through COVID. So literally every single person on this planet has now experienced trauma to some degree. 100%. But what are tall tell signs that you feel like you can look out for where you're like, I think I might need to make a change? I know that's kind of a broad question, but what are habits or survivalist tactics people might be doing that? Maybe we can call out just to be like, hey, well, if you're experiencing this, like maybe you do want to investigate something more. So you are entering your life into more of a thriving mode. Yeah. So what's really interesting in working with people is most people, and I would say like 98% of the people that I work with who are incredibly intelligent and very smart still have no idea what they want or why, but they really know what they don't want again, that away from. So people will come to me and let's say we were in a session, right? And this is my magic wand. And I could say, Tatiana, if I could go like this and just shift something. What would that be? Right. And sometimes people will be like, oh, well, like, I don't like how I show up at work. I feel really small and blah, blah. I'm like, right. But so what do you want? And they'll say, well, I want to be more confident. And I'll say, okay, well, what does confidence mean to you? And they look at me like I have four heads, right? And they go, I don't know, like, um, like I don't want to shrink and I don't want to feel uncomfortable when people ask me a question. I don't want to be scared to share my ideas. And I'm like, I didn't ask you what you don't want. I asked you, what does confidence mean to you? How do we expect to be something if we don't even understand it, right? So a really great practice to do, and everybody could do this for free. You don't have to buy my workshop to do this, 
is just for yourself, when you're really trying to figure out who you are and how you want to show up in your life, start listing all of the things that you don't want or the things that you're tired of. Because guess what? What you actually want is just the opposite, <laughs> right? It's not that hard. Like this blows people's minds sometimes, right? Because people will be like, well, I don't want to shrink. I'm like, okay, so if you don't want to shrink, what do you want? And they're like, I want to hold my space. I'm like, cool. I don't want to shut down when I share my ideas. Okay, what do you want? I want to feel comfortable speaking up in meetings. Great, right? Your subconscious will understand that. It doesn't understand don't, 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 don't. It wants reward, so we have to reframe that even with language. So that's a really great exercise for people to really start understanding. You don't know who you are. Great. Admit it. Because once you do that, that's the path to freedom because you're just in a state of potential. So start looking at what isn't working, how you don't want to feel, what you don't want to do. Make a list, draw a vertical line and write the opposite next to it. And that's your roadmap. I'm obsessed with that. Thank you for sharing. I want to switch gears a bit and ask you about how you cultivated your current relationship that you're in right now. You know, I think there are a lot of listeners who might be calling in their desired partner. And I know that you've been so expansive for so many people in outside of like what you're currently doing now with like TBM and stuff. I know you've served as a really big expander for people for finding partners, but I really would love to know what that journey was like for you meeting your current partner and how that came to be. So I was in a pretty toxic relationship with an alcoholic who was very emotionally abusive. And we were together for four years, but everyone was like, oh, he's so fun and you're so lucky. And because they saw this one side of him, right? One day, one of my friends came over and stayed over and actually saw what I was living and started crying. And she goes, this is what you've been dealing with. And I was like, yeah, every day. Right. But it felt so natural to me because it was like my childhood. Oh my God, I can make it better. No, he is a good person. He just needs love. He needs me to teach him. He needs to write all that drive. Like, Ooh, someone needs me. Like this is right. That's what it was. And so when we broke up, I was like, I am so done. I do not trust myself. I don't want to meet someone ever again. I'm because I'm also very autonomous and independent. And I could be just by myself and be totally fine, to be honest with you. Right. Not for the majority of my life. I couldn't. But now I'm like, oh, I'm pretty amazing. And anyone who I'm with needs to meet me there. So this friend who I met years earlier who worked at the S&M place moved to New York and she was in a really low spot in her life. And I had been studying Kabbalah for a few years and I was like, you should go check this out. Right. I found this very helpful. So she went and she was like, oh my God, I met this guy. He's my mentor in my class. And I just think you guys would like, just really get along. And I was like, not interested. Don't want to meet anyone. She's like, no, no, no. Even just friends. I'm like, no, I don't want to. I'm, I'm over the center. I'm over the political thing. It's supposed to be spiritual, but it's so political. Like, I just don't, I'm not into the environment anymore. And she's like, please just come, please just come. And then she's like, he's a Lord and he's this. And I'm like, I grew up in a trailer. I don't care if he's a Lord. Like that doesn't impress me. Right. So she kept trying and trying and trying and trying, but I was just so done finally, she's like, can you please come? And I was like, okay, after like months. And we met at Shabbat at the Kabbalah Center. And the first conversation we ever had was an argument. And I mean, like an argument, 
all the rabbis around us are like looking like what the fuck is going on at this table? Like this is like Friday night Shabbat, right? We're having dinner, everyone's doing prayers and stuff and we're literally arguing. And I just thought he was so arrogant and so matter of fact in a way that like it was like, ugh, but also like, huh, right? Because he really embodied everything I didn't because I was so afraid unless I was defending people, I did not have a voice. And so this argument actually made that part of me activate. So I was pushing back, but from this very calm place, because I've always been able to really manage my anger and my emotions and not let them drive me. Right. And I think he was kind of like, huh, who the fuck is this guy who's not just agreeing with everything I'm saying and actually holding me accountable? So that happened the next day, Saturday morning, Shabbat, I went for the Torah reading and I saw him and he was sitting in the front because like that was his thing, center of attention and whatever. And I saw him and I was like, no. And I sat like so far in the back so he couldn't even see me because I was just like, I have no interest in this person. Like I'm so done. Like I don't even know what she was thinking. And I kept seeing him look around. I'm like, what the fuck is he looking around for, right? He's looking for me. Again, we ended up at the same table and just saw different pieces of each other. And we had another friend in common, our friend, Emily, the three of us started hanging out and there were four people. And actually all of the people had crushes on me, which was so weird because I never got attention like that. I never thought it was attractive. I never thought it was smart. I never thought I had anything to offer besides like, I can help you, right? What can I do for you? So it was such an interesting period, but we all hung out a lot. And then Gavin and I just started hanging out more and more on our own. I don't even know that he really knew who he was at that time. And I kind of did, but still wasn't fully comfortable. But we just kind of started hanging out and then we never stopped hanging out. And we've been together for 16 years and it's just so crazy. We never had a break. We never broke up. We just really stuck with each other and helped each other grow and hold each other accountable and we had a rough patch a couple of years ago before longer than that now, because it was right before COVID, like a year before COVID, where we both really got lost in our lives and got lost in our programming of, I need to achieve and I'm not this. And oh my God, now I'm like 30 years old and I haven't done this and I don't have any money. I don't have security. And we both were doing that and both felt so stuck and started resenting each other a little bit, but we're able to come back together stronger than ever. And we just have the best relationship now. It's almost like we're back in like that honeymoon phase, like 16 years later, where it's like, when I look over, that's the person I want doing everything with me. Oh my God, that is such a great story. I love that there was like kind of some argument and like resistance in there too. Oh, and there still is. It's totally our dynamic, right? Except my buttons can't be pushed now, which he hates and he really tries hard. He's like, I hate this. I can't even say anything to piss you off anymore. (laughs) Sorry. So it happens when you're integrated. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Consider me healed. That's hysterical. Okay. So for anybody who's listening, who's like, okay, I want that. I want to cultivate really authentic desire, whether they're looking for a partnership or like really incredible sex, wanting romance, intimacy, like all those things. Where can we kind of like begin to explore that for ourselves, especially for maybe people who are kind of like in a rut and like finding themselves maybe on like a pattern where they're like repeatedly like not finding the right partner, like just dating the people who are not helping their growth. 
Yeah. And I think the thing is most people are in a rut until they're not, especially when it comes with dating, right? Until they really learn the thing. And that's usually when they find the right partner and they have some challenges or like the kind of partner that helps them bridge to the partner that they really want. Right. But you know, it's so interesting and people hate this, but obviously, you know, very interactive on my social media. I give away a lot of free tools. I do lessons multiple times a week, video lessons, written lessons. I give assignments to people who follow me. And I do a lot of Q&A and we'll ask people who are in relationships, like what changed that made you all of a sudden be able to be in a relationship or find a relationship, right? For people who aren't. And one thing that people always say, and single people hate this. And literally when I even share other people saying this, they'd like start like, this is lazy. How could you say that? I'm like, I actually didn't say this, but this is the mechanics behind what this person is saying. Cause they get offended. Right. Cause it feels judgmental. Right. So if you're listening to this and you get triggered by this, then this is probably your issue too, because we hear a lot from people, people who find relationships. Oh, when I found my dream relationship, I had a period where I just really learned how to love myself and really learned how to give to myself and start providing for myself in the way that I was expecting other people to. And single people don't like to hear that because they're like, oh, well, that's so this and it's so rude. Like, uh, of course I'm trying and I'm trying to do this so I can have the relationship. I'm trying to, it's like, right, but exactly. You're trying to do this so you can have a relationship. There's still, right, parameters around it. There's still, oh, I'm doing this so I can have this versus I'm doing this because this is what I deserve. I'm doing this for myself. This is my life. I'm doing this because I deserve to feel loved. And I'm going to learn how to give myself in every way, shape, or form. I'm going to learn how to ask for support from my friends. I'm going to learn how to be vulnerable in the environments that I'm still not totally comfortable in, but I should feel safe in. And when we start doing that, then we don't close down. We're not afraid of showing up as ourselves or trying to be the person who gets the date or the person who that people think is funny or whatever it is that we've been told is our skill set that is desirable. We just show up. If you start making decisions on what you're allowed to reveal about yourself and what needs to be hidden, I promise you, you have zero control on how you are coming across. You don't know what is going through that wall and what is being closed off, right? Because you've already made the decision that who you are is not good enough. And that's not an easy thing to hear, but it's true. And it's every single client too. Well, I need this and I need this date. And I'm like, but why? Oh, because I need this. And it's like, right. Is that the best motivation for you to really get to know somebody, to try dating people that like maybe you're not attracted to? Because let's look at what you're attracted to and see how that's been working for you. Oh, I'm not into him at all because this cool. Who are you into? Oh, you're into these people who treated you like shit. And you have the same story in every relationship. Well, do you think maybe there's something you still need to learn? Do you think maybe there's something that you can do so that when you see that red flag, you know that this is not a healthy attraction and feel okay with that choice, right? I think what you're really pointing out is like learning to be in flow with your life, like and in the singular, not worrying about cultivating a partner or like the friends involved. You know, I see a lot of people with codependency. I mean, this is why I, I left an entire group of friends. I was like, can you do one fucking thing alone without like this mob mentality around it? And it's like I reconnected to this amazing part of me and I feel like I'm currently in this flow. So maybe I can be expansive to someone else who's listening in this to this episode right now. But like when you can live your life according to your wants and desires, that's when your people are going to show up. 
And it's the most amazing thing. And that's how I, when I met my partner five years ago, I was in that mind space. You know, I'm currently in this place where I'm just like, you know what? I actually want to show up to the things that I'm so eager and curious and things that make me feel alive. Like I started going to this like tennis clinic in Griffith Park. I'm now going three times a week at seven in the morning. I'm playing with like the coolest, excited people who are just happy to hit a ball around. <laughs> like It makes me feel so alive. And I'm so happy in a really great long-term committed relationship. But it's funny because I was thinking to myself the other day, yeah, I could probably meet someone through this. This is how, like, these are the instances where you just, you know, maybe I'll make some incredible friendships, but I'm like, oh, I'm sure people have partnered up from this. But what's the difference, right, is that you're just showing up in your interests, doing what you want to do. You're not changing pieces of yourself to try and connect with people. That's the lesson there, right? And very similarly, I had to put a lot of boundaries with friendships. And I'm like, cool, now I have all this freedom. What kind of people do I want to be friends with, right? I sign up for an abstract painting class now that I do once a week, right? And I'm around the people that I love. I meet people doing things like this that I continue being friends with and having dinner and, right? I'm just, the places that I show up as me always connects me to the right opportunities, people, all of that. And we have to learn to trust that. But the problem is we've all learned to look at the environment and then decide who we're allowed to be right? Be a good girl so that your dad doesn't get mad at you. Oh, you got to do your homework. So you make your teacher happy. Oh, you got to do this. So you're a good boyfriend or a good girlfriend or whatever. And it's like, immediately you're compromising who you are to become how you're supposed to be for other people. And when we really can start leaning back into what our actual wants and needs are and maintain them and really make that our focus, the aligned people come and the people who are misaligned start falling off. And even though it doesn't feel good, there's going to be a lot of lessons in that process when they're falling off for you to also make sure that you can stand your ground and use your voice and speak your truth because that's how you start resolving this programming in real time also by learning how to be like, no, 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 this is what's happening. And this is why our friendship isn't going to work. I love you, but neither of us are happy within this. Someone's always feeling overlooked. Someone's always feeling slighted. And that's not a dynamic I want to feed into. And it's not something I want to feel coming back at me either. Right. And then guess what? Now you have space to find other people instead of constantly having the same fights and the same issues and feeling like you have to be someone that you're not to hang out with your friends. Like when is enough enough with that mm -hmm. it's like we're almost trying to fill our time with all this clutter and this noise and it's like when we can learn to literally declutter that space that's when like that kind of magnetism and like manifestation stuff that we're loosely tapped into or majorly tapped into starts to like filtrate in it's pretty crazy <laughs> but why right because you're not locked into the noise we distract ourselves and we busy ourselves because we're so afraid to be in our own space because then what happens then we're maybe feel something that we don't want to feel but guess what you have an opportunity to work through it but if you're constantly in the noise you're never going to know who you are you're always going to be who you need to be for others right oh my gosh i could talk to you forever <laughs> <laughs> we just are scratching the surface, but this is so good. I really would love to hear from you. What are you doing right now to really stay in your pleasure and stay in the presence? What is your routine kind of looking like? 
My routine is rehearse, recalibrate, review. My protocol, it's the only work I've done over the past year. I took six months to really tailor it down, record it, go back in, just make sure as efficient as possible. I do it every single day. I wake up, I do rehearse, see my day that I'm about to live. I check in for recalibrate from 1 to 3 p.m. every single day to come back in my body, turn off stimulation, relax my nervous system. And I do review every single evening to really look over my day, emotionally reward myself for where I changed, notice where I fell back into old patterns and why from a non-judgmental place, just from a learning place. And then I get up and I do it all over again. And don't underestimate the power of just tapping into your body a few times a day, because if you do that, you are going to see really fast changes. Obviously, in between that, I'm a very mindful person. That's really how I work with people to learn how to stay present, to be in this moment so that you do have that choice. And you can be like, ooh, I'm starting to notice I'm feeling anxious because, oh, I'm overthinking. Okay, let me stop that. Where can I redirect my attention? It just keeps you aware. And the more aware we are, the more we can shift. Wow. You mentioned that you redefined the word happiness for you. So what does happiness look like for you right now? So it's interesting. This is an exercise I do with all of my clients too. Like third session in normally is we really elicit their values because most people say like, oh, I value family and I value money and I value this and I value my career and I value my friends. And I'm like, right, but those aren't your values. Those are your value representations in your environment. Those are the avenues that you use to connect with your deeper value, right? So we really get into what their values are. And then we order that level of importance because that is actual happiness when you're living your values and you're living them in the balance that works best for you in all areas. And they don't change. You don't have, oh, this is who I am at work. This is here. That's where we've been lied to. Who you are and what you value needs to be who you are 24 hours a day in every area of your life. And to me, that is happiness. And that's what I've seen with my clients as well. They figure it out and I call it, we create their value compass and they're like, holy shit. And I'm like, right. And what order have these been in? And then they're like, oh my God, I was putting this first and it's actually down here. And this start really understanding why things aren't the way that you want them to be. Wow. Oh my gosh. Okay. So clearly everybody has to go check out your programs, the seed level, I'll have you drop all your links and kind of what you're currently working on in a moment, but I'd love to know what is currently on your bedside table. An eye movement integration book on my bedside table upstairs and my bedside, technically my couch side table, there's an NLP book. I spend basically majority of my free time educating myself. I love learning new things. I love new techniques. And yeah, so that's what I'm reading. I love it. (laughs) Amazing. Okay. Well, what can we expect from you kind of coming down the line and how can anyone who's listening just connect with your work and your programs and your workshops? Tell us it all. Yeah. So I only have the one protocol out right now, Rehearse, Recalibrate, Review, but it's literally the mother of all workshops. It will connect you more with every other modality you are using because it really keeps you in your body. I cannot tell people enough, like go get it. In addition to that, I'm going to begin doing group classes, group Zoom classes monthly to be able to help people on a larger scale for who may not be able to afford a one-on-one session with me. I'm gonna be using a lot of NLP techniques to redefine our relationship with money. That one's gonna be coming. I'm gonna be doing one all around eliciting your values, one around proactive versus reactive change in detail. 
literally eight more workshops that are in development. So I think the next one I'm releasing is called You Are Here. And it's all about mindfulness and cognitive disruption in order to stay present in our day and really learning how to tap into your senses to experience life that's much richer than the one you're probably currently living. (laughs) I love it. Oh, my gosh. Well, I can't recommend you guys enough. So go check out in the show notes all the links I'm leaving for Atara's work and his links. So, yeah, thank you so much for joining me today. And I already can't wait for our next recording, (laughs) whenever that may be. Thank you so much. That was such a beautiful conversation. I feel like we can stand here for another four hours. So we'll definitely do it again. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Stay tuned, everybody. And thank you again. This has been such a treat. Thank you again for tuning into the Bedside Podcast today. I loved this conversation with Atara, and I hope that you were able to get some amazing insights and tips and how-tos from our conversation today. And if anything, like I hope this kind of just sparks some ideas for you and it gets you thinking and investigating ways that you can also begin to transform your life and day by day live more and more authentically because it is so freeing. So I hope it just served as a really amazing inspiration for moving forward and transforming your life. Anyways, I would love to do a quick Q&A. Somebody wrote in and said that their ex rebounded really quickly. They're sitting with a lot of resentment and pain and asking if there are any affirming words. Man, I have a lot of thoughts about this and I'll try to keep it really concise, but it's a really real thing when someone goes through a breakup and an individual in the relationship ends up moving on really quick and it can be super painful. And I know it sounds backwards, but I always say when people go through breakups, just congratulations because you're about to meet a really incredible version of yourself once you get through the tenderness of it. If you're the one sitting and feeling your feelings, you probably have the upper hand. And I know it doesn't look like it because you think that the person who's rebounding moved on and found someone better, but almost always that person, if they really ended up rebounding super quickly, is just going back into the same patterning. While your ex might be just serial dating and avoiding their own feelings and staying in the same loops that they've been in, you're the one who's really facing yourself and going through growing pains and looking into that tenderness. And in time, you'll be so happy that you took the route that you did because you're going to be the one who's breaking those patterns and who, like in this episode we just talked about, showing up for yourself in ways that you didn't even know was possible. So I thought this was such a great question to refer back to based off of this episode. I, you know, I do want to make a caveat too. There could have been a circumstance where each of you had been emotionally checked out for a really long time well before you ended breaking things off. So I don't want to say that everything is a rebound, but for the most part it is. And in the circumstances that it isn't, it's just because those individuals were able to healthily move on. They'd probably been checked out for a while and they could assess their emotional availability from the get-go. So I hope that helps answer your question. And yeah, I look forward to answering more on these episodes. All right, guys, have a wonderful rest of your day and I will catch you next week. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to the Bedside Podcast. If you liked this episode and want to follow along with similar stories and interviews, be sure to check out our Instagram at thebedside and thebedside.co online. Make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and of course, share with your friends. It's the best way you can support us and our good sex mission. Thank you for listening.